and welcome to another episode of Muslim Money. I'm your host, Imran. In the last episode, we talked about some of the verses uh, related to the prohibition of riba from the Quran and Sunnah. In today's lesson, we're going to be looking at how the traditional jurists interpreted the riba and extended the prohibition to other commodities. My name is Imran and I'm your host for this series and Muslim Money is a podcast where we talk about anything and everything related to Muslims and money. The idea behind this podcast came about through my research on Islamic finance and also working in the industry. I'm also the author of a comparative study of Islamic finance in Australia and the UK, which you can get on the Routledge website. And in this series, we're going to be talking about some of the themes and issues that emanate from that book. So I hope you enjoy it. So after the death of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, in 632, the Muslim world rapidly expanded across three continents of Africa, Europe, and Asia. Approximately 100 years after the death of the Prophet Muhammad, the rightly guided caliphs, Al-Khulafa al-Rashidun, and the caliphs of the Umayyad dynasty, established an empire that was geographically greater than Rome in its zenith. And over time, you had major international trading cities which were established. For example, Baghdad was a commercial metropolis by the 10th century. And then you had the various empires from the Abbasid Empire to the, the Umayyad empires of Al-Andalus, the Fatimids, the Ayyubids, the Seljuks, and, and, and notwithstanding you know, the great Ottoman Empire, you had literally the Muslim world was a massive geographical expanse. And with that, trade was integral to the life of many of these empires and Muslims throughout history. And by the 15th century, you had other cities from Cairo to Gujarat, from Malacca. They all had become major centers of trade. And often you had major trading highways via the Silk Road and all of its offshoots. And at times you had a highly sophisticated international you know, financial network which supported international trade between Muslim communities through various financiers, um, some known as the Sarafiyya. In this context of growing trade and commerce, early jurists, the Fuqaha, sought to define which transactions were permissible and which were not. They did this by attempting to understand precisely what constituted this prohibited riba. And some of the earliest commentary about riba appears in the Muwatta of Imam Malik, who died in 786. And it discusses the riba from the pre-Islamic period, the time of the, the Jahiliyyah. Malik related to me that Zayd ibn Aslam said, riba in the Jahiliyyah, the pre-Islamic period, was that a man would give a loan to a man for a set term. When the term was due, he would say, will you pay it off or increase me? If the man paid, he took it. If not, he increased him in his debt and lengthened the term for him. Ibn Rush, the great Andalusi scholar of the late 12th century, makes a point that during this period they used to stipulate excess in loans and then delay the period of repayment. He argues that this is what the Prophet meant when he said at the farewell pilgrimage, take heed, verily riba al-jahiliya, riba of jahiliya uh, of the pre-Islamic period is annulled. And the first claim of riba I cancel is that of al-Abbas ibn Abd al-Muttalib. Based on this understanding of riba, Jurists of the four main schools of Islamic jurisprudence, the Madhahib, particularly focused on this, what we talked about in the last episode, this six commodities hadith. And these early jurists sought to understand or, or, or to find out what the illa was, which is the operative clause of the prohibition of each commodity, and then extend the prohibition to other commodities through the legal tool of qiyas or analogy. 
I just want to pause here to explain usul al-fiqh a little bit because an understanding of how usul works will enable us to understand how the jurists extended the prohibition of riba to other commodities. During the time of the Prophet, if there was any issue, it was relatively straightforward. Um, the issue would be solved via revelation or by the prophetic tradition. So for example, what the Prophet said, what he didn't say through his actions, and that would dictate the right course of action. After the death of the Prophet, however, um, you had the rightly guided caliphs of Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman, and Ali. And generally speaking, given that they were the rightly guided caliphs, they would adjudicate on what, it, what was considered to be the Islamic position. After the death of Ali, you had a lot of turbulence and, and political turmoil, and you had a general separation between politics and the religious scholars. So the religious scholars, a lot of jurists, would retreat into the houses to actually discuss and find out and you know separate themselves from the political um, challenges at the time to understand what was the Islamic viewpoint on particular matters. And it's here where you had the birth of many schools of Islamic law. And they developed by virtue of scholars retreating into the houses or schools. And it's in this context where you had the birth of the, the various schools of Islamic law and the development of usul al-fiqh, methodologies of jurisprudence. So there's unanimity on the acceptance of the Qur'an and the Sunnah as the primary sources of Islamic law. Among the secondary sources of Islamic law, however, is this concept of ijma', which is consensus of opinion. Now, consensus could mean to various scholars either unanimous opinion or a majority opinion on a particular issue. And then over time, there was a lot of debate on what actually constitutes ijma'. Another secondary source of usul al-fiqh is this concept of qiyas or analogy. And it's qiyas which is really relevant in the understanding of riba and how it extends to different commodities. Qiyas can be defined as analogy or deduction, and it's essentially the practice of basing a new legal ruling on a previous ruling concerning a similar case. So the tool of Qiyas identifies this operative clause or effective clause, some, you might translate the illa, or some kind of underlying hikmah, wisdom, hikmah al-hukm al-shari'i, in a previous ruling, and then applies it to a related issue. So Qiyas is the only form of, uh, of a kind of reason-based legal argumentation to which all the major Sunni schools accepted. So each of the major Sunni jurists, Abu Hanifa, Malik, Shafi'iyin, Ahmed ibn Hanbal, issued legal rulings based on it. The application of analogy, however, did not have complete consensus. And jurists would debate and differ on the methods of applying it and how they were willing to curtail kind of its application. Having said that, it's a very important tool to understand riba because it's the tool that they use when looking at the six commodities hadith to extend the prohibition of riba to other commodities. So in a modern context, for example, how does qiyas actually work? So the Qur'an, for example, doesn't talk about uh, cocaine or heroin, as an example. But these things are just generally considered to be prohibited. What the Qur'an prohibits is this is khamar, or date wine. So an example of how qiyas or analogy works is that they would look at a new phenomenon, for example, cocaine, heroin. They'll look at date wine. And they'll then look for this effective clause, this illa. What are the things that kind of links these two things together? And it's the intoxication effect. So by qiyas or analogy, heroin, cocaine are also prohibited because they create this kind of intoxication effect. So similarly, scholars looked at this six commodities hadith, looked at new commodities, and they tried to find the link between the six commodities and these new commodities. And then they would then extend the prohibition to other commodities. 
So for example, the Hanafis extended the prohibition in the Hadith to all items that could be measured by volume and weight. The Shafi'is and the Malikis, for example, restricted the analogy or Qiyas to specifically gold, silver and foodstuffs, with a further restriction by the Malikis on non-perishable foodstuffs. However, not all schools extended the prohibition to other commodities. The Zahiri Madhab, for example, which was founded by a guy called Dawud ibn Khalaf al-Zahiri in the 9th century, which was popular in Al-Andalus and made famous by a scholar by the name of Ibn Hazm, they took the view that the prohibition only applied to the six categories outlined in the Hadith and restricted any reasoning via Qiyas al-Shabha, the Qiyas of semblance, beyond the goods mentioned clearly in the Hadith. Now with the advent of rudimentary banking in Europe in the 12th century, the analogy was also extended to money. By the end of the 14th century, new banking houses had appeared in Italy, and by the end of the 15th century, Antwerp, London, they were setting a new style of business for the future, and that marked the beginning of modern conventional banking. And with the cessation of European colonization and the subsequent nation-building in the Muslim world in the 20th century, discussions around riba, conventional banking and finance were heightened. And as Muslim countries gained independence from European colonization, most Muslim countries, with the exception of few such as Saudi Arabia, retained Islamic laws and legal systems that were adopted from the West. And with perhaps the exception of Islamic family law, much of the remaining positive law was in form and in substance closer to Western models. Many religious leaders reconciled a financial sector primarily based on interest with the prohibition of riba on grounds of necessity or dorura. And faced with an increasingly interest-based global economy, some ulama or scholars sought to return to the traditional text, not only to redefine the riba in light of modern conventional banking and finance, but also find ways of dealing with the ever-changing landscape in which riba was debated. Now, defining riba was further complicated by attempts to translate it into a language other than Arabic. And many argued that there's no single word in English which can sufficiently define riba in its entirety. And this inability to define in English what riba is has led to a lot of confusion among lay people and scholars alike. Interestingly, in the advent of fiat money or paper money, there was another discussion among scholars because paper money was not in circulation during the time of the early jurists. And there was a similar debate among the Shafi'is who took the view that riba did not apply to fulus, which was a copper coin adopted by the Byzantinian Empire. And the reason being is because they viewed it as a commodity and they differentiated it from gold and silver. Now the Shafi'i scholars considered their illa, or the effective clause in Qiyas, the analogy of gold and silver, is that it is a medium of exchange. And fulus was accepted in some areas and not others, and therefore riba did not apply to fulus. And later scholars during the 20th century would debate on the extent to which fiat money or fiat paper money is equivalent to fulus. Because during the age of, of nation building, you know, there was a lot of discussions around, you know, well, this is this concept of paper money is backed by a government, but who recognizes this government? The government can change and it's not recognized as a medium of exchange. This, of course, lends itself to interesting discussions on cryptocurrency and to what extent cryptocurrencies can be accepted as a medium of exchange. So are cryptocurrencies more analogous to gold and silver in that they are a medium of exchange and recognized? Or could they be more understood as fulus? And in the Shafi opinion, when it relates to fulus, riba did not apply. 
However, other scholars would stipulate that if fulus was recognized by parties as the medium of exchange, then the prohibition of riba does apply. So these are just some interesting contemporary applications of some of the um, traditional rulings. We're going to stop there for this episode. Uh, in the next episode, we're going to talk about the 20th century and some of the trends and how they've influenced the debate on the riba. And we'll catch you next time.